Blog Talk Radio. to the Donaldson Files, the Wednesday edition, the what I would call the Resistance Hour edition. Um, and I'm, I'm waiting now for Dr. Larry to join us, and we're going to try to see if George Landreth, now George Landreth uh, is on vacation, but he said he's going to see if he can call in uh, for a period of time, so we'll, hopefully he does. And I'm, as I said, I'm still waiting for uh, Dr. Larry to call in. So, but what we're going to do here tonight, we're going to talk about the presidency, mainly because there was uh, some rankings that have been recently passed uh, by historians. And, you know, while some of them I would agree with and look at, some of them were, I just, like, was totally puzzled. I was totally puzzled. Mainly because, uh, and, and, and by the way, Dr. Larry has now joined us. Dr. Larry, how are you doing? I'm great. Well, like I say, um, George Landreth may be joining us. He's on vacation. He said he's in an area where he's not sure about the reception. But if he can call in, he'll call in. Uh, and there was a couple other guests who basically uh, you know, let me know that they were not able to call in because they're on vacation. But then well, again, I never take a take, vacation. I just say, you and me, we don't take vacations, right? That's right. <laughs> Yep. I mean, even when even when you're my guest host, when I'm out, <laughs> it's only because I'm out working somewhere. Yes. All right. Here's the thing. We're going to talk about the president's thing. We're going to spend a whole hour, and we do have, and we may even get David Rear to join us a little bit on this subject, even though he just wrote a paper on robotics, and we're going to really delve into the paper that he wrote. Uh, for, but here's the thing. And this is what I'm going to tell. This is this is what got me onto this is that, you know, there have been like three or four rankings recently done in presidents, and and if you ever, I mean, and if you ever want to know the bias of historians, this pretty much will demonstrate. For example, the last rating that came out just a, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Barack Obama is listed as the tenth. Best president. He's number ten on the list. Okay. Trump is number forty-one on the list. And you know, now you and me have had this discussion before, but I want to really delve into some of this because I'm like I'm looking at this. And I'm thinking, how can you rate Obama number ten just just even based on his record? I mean, he's I mean, he's just barely behind Ronald Reagan. Right. Well, it, I think I think the they're giving him a lot of points for for just getting there as the first black president, and I think that kind of taints their entire uh, perception of what what he did. 
because uh, once if they look at it very carefully, they're going to see a lot of a lot of problems, especially after that first two years. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. To me, is this, uh, and, and I'm going to start off with a comparison with him. Like I say, I, you know, I, I go back and forth with Trump. You know, about a couple of weeks ago, I had him in the bottom half. You know, you know I was looking at it today. I, I, you know, I can at least say, you know, maybe, you know, I can put him at, uh, Uh, 22, 23 in the top half. But I think it's too early for me to sit back and say, even though he's had his accomplishments, which he does, uh, which will, you know, delve in, you know, delve in a little bit as the show goes on. But, you know, it's really, you know, it's kind of too early in my view, because we don't know how everything is going to hang, you know, come out. And I kind of look at, you know, Obama in the same way, in the sense that we already see, Aspects of his policies that were complete failures, uh, in my view. Uh, his foreign policy has been a complete disaster. He was not a great president on civil liberties. Uh, so it's and his economic well, what, program. Okay, go ahead. Well, what, what's really surprising about that latter uh, uh, situation is. We all thought that that we had America had accomplished a, an enormous uh, uh, advantage and, and uh, progress by electing a, uh, a black president, uh, actually, and then twice. And we all sort of thought, well, that kind of puts to it's kind of the culmination of all of the uh, civil rights activity that really started uh, in, 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 uh, in, in real strength in, in the 1950s. And yeah. this is 60, almost 60 years later. Uh, it really it showed that all of that effort actually would, had, a, uh, had a great out, outcome. But yeah. on the contrary, it, it, uh, race relations really got a lot worse. Uh, during the uh, Obama period, and and really a lot because of Obama himself. Um, so you know, one of what should have been his greatest, one of his greatest accomplishments, uh, and in my opinion, and I think an opinion of a lot of people, uh, really turned into be one of his great failures. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, I mean that's the only thing because I don't think it'll be. There's no doubt in my mind, I mean, in my view, being elected president is in itself an accomplishment, you know, being the first black president. That, yeah. you know, I mean, honestly, and I think that's nothing, you know, that's, and certainly he demonstrated that you could be black and get elected president with a substantial amount of white voters, which he did. So it's not like, you know, he, you know, it's not like, I mean, this is, but you also got to look at the other accounts, you know, what else is out there. And, I mean, there's three things you can look at, in my view. Yeah, And let's take the Civil Liberties Society of the Equation. I mean, this has happened under his administration. We do know that reporters were spied on as an effort to, de- to deal with, quote, unquote, leaks early in the administration. We know 
that one of those includes uh, Jim Rosen, a Fox reporter. We know clearly that the IRS was used and targeted to go after political opponents. And we also know, you know, with the Russian collusion hoax, that the FBI abused the FBI abused their powers, basically produced warrants to spy on a presidential campaign, and the idea that he would not have known about it. In fact, you know, the more you, you, the data comes out, the more you realize he, uh, he knew what was going on, and so did uh, his vice president. Uh, this was not a pure, and certainly, now this was not a period of great aspect of civil liberties, and the worst. The other aspect is, on a statewide basis, like Wisconsin and Texas, there were several abuses of people's rights. Uh, in Wisconsin, you have what we call the John Doe II investigation. Essentially, what it is, you had a rogue attorney going after Scott Walker supporters in the gang of, quote-unquote, going after campaign finance and campaign violations of coordination and collaboration with Scott Walker. And you want to talk about... You know, and again, all of this has been documented. I mean, there's, there's nothing in here that cannot be documented. And the second aspect is foreign policy. His foreign policies were a disaster. I mean, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let me put it this way. You know, in 2009, Yemen was stable. In 2017, Donald Trump inherited a civil war between Iranian proxies and Saudi Arabia. Libya was stable in 2009. In 2017, essentially, it became a playground for terrorists. And the Gaddafi, who had surrendered in the war of terror, was removed from office and the chaos that resulted. Uh, Iran gained power and money from the Obama administration. I guarantee as many people, if not more, died as a result of Obama's recklessness in the Middle East than did in the George Bush era. The Ukraine used to, was all, in 2009, was one country. 2017, it essentially was split in half. Now, I mean, that was the foreign policy, and, and of course, China was on the march. This is the world that Donald Trump inherited, and we'll come right back to that. This is Tom Donaldson with Dr. Larry here on the on the Bachelor News Radio Network. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? One in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, this uh, particular segment will be sponsored by Buffalo Wild Wings. 
Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Yeah, welcome back to the Johnson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Listen, if you want to listen to this podcast and others, simply go to the bachelornews.airtime.pro, and you can listen to this show and other great shows anytime you want, right? Now. So, and you can get just push on full schedule. And for example, Johnson uh, Files will be on eleven. 10 o'clock Central Time, 11 Eastern Time, and also repeated at 4 Eastern Time, 3 Central Time here on the Bassin News Radio Network. And plus, you can get our show anytime on TuneIn, into Spotify, and Anchor as well. So those, uh, those particular networks are included as well. So... And if you want to call in and say, you know, Tom and Larry, you two are the, you two are geniuses. There's nothing to disagree with. Yeah, we'll let you on to, and, and let you say exactly that. Funny, we now, don't get any of those. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> so. All right, so all right. Well, I, when okay. you're when you're talking uh, Go ahead. Uh, foreign policy, don't forget North Korea. You know, we we were on the verge of war with uh, North Korea when uh, Trump took over, and uh, and then uh, also you have to you have to remember uh, the uh, whole NATO situation. Um, you yeah. know, we were paying all the bills and getting nothing, and Germany was drifting closer and closer to Russia. And, uh, I think I, I can't think of any any uh, foreign policy uh, success that uh, that I recall anyway that um, Obama had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, that's I mean the thing. I mean, like I say, I mean that when you look at these numbers and even on economics. Now he did have a recovery. You can say that. I mean, he continued. You know, he, we you know be, be, he did have a recovery. But it was a weak recovery, but it was incredible nonetheless. I mean, that's the one thing he can say, uh, even though the recovery was half of that of the Reagan years, and uh, there were aspects of, you know, parts of our population that didn't benefit from that, uh, the Obama recovery. Uh, and certainly you could even make a better argument that the Trump recovery that continued was, you know, stronger for those at the bottom. Uh but I mean, uh, so you can have. I mean, there, there, the economic side is debatable. The foreign policy side, you have to look at and just say to yourself, as you stated, what successes were there? And as I and I've already made the case on, uh, you know, civil liberties. So that indeed he was a poor civil liberty president, and you're seeing some of the things he's talked, you know, that happened to him. Well, are now Harris administration. So, we'll, and I'm going to just say right now, based on the first several months 
there's nothing to indicate to me that the Biden-Harris administration will be any better on protection of civil liberties. Now, how would you rank Trump? Well, I, I remember what uh, Bob Livingston said. He, he said uh, when Trump came along, it was divine providence <laughs> because yeah. uh, we were drifting so uh, inevitably toward, uh, uh, you know, uh, the downfall of, of not only the, the American um, foreign policy, but also the uh, American public was just. Uh, I mean, we were getting we were getting into this this whole issue of uh, violence and uh, and uh, these demonstrations. They they got worse as uh, during the Trump administration, but they started in the uh, in the Obama administration. And uh, they're continuing, apparently, in the Biden administration. But um, so um, I would I would have Trump I would have um, put Trump. I think that the major transformational presidents uh, of of American history are probably you'd have to say George Washington to begin with, and uh, yeah. then I think uh, the next one probably was Abraham Lincoln. Which is what seventy-five years later, almost a hundred years later. Um, uh, you, you could make a case for Calvin Coolidge because of uh, the way he uh, balanced the budget and and got uh, reduced taxes and so on. Um, uh, but uh, certainly, Delano, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was transformational. Whether you agree with the transformation or not, you have to admit that. Anybody that could get four terms as in a, in a two-term presidency has got to have something. Um, and then I think uh, because of the situation that occurred with Nixon and Ford uh, uh, and then uh, Carter, your, uh, Ronald Reagan became uh, kind of a, uh, a whole different uh, a transformational president. Um, and then I, I I would say that uh, Trump belongs in, in after those guys. Now, had he gotten his second term, uh, I, I think that would have been pretty well established. Or or if he had not gotten the uh, the the pandemic, that probably that made a lot of difference also. But I would have to put him up up there if if that's if you're talking about the transformation. Of America's uh, general um, uh, the, the general policy of government of the, of the role of government and the uh, effect of a change of government, I would put him right up there in the, in the top I don't know half dozen or so. Uh, if you're talking about uh, the other aspect of his tenure, I, I think the uh, the, the fact that that he is really the uh, the first victim, very obvious victim of the uh, what I call the unholy alliance between the the press, the uh, deep state, the billionaires, and uh, uh, the uh, liberals. Uh, he certainly was a divisive a divisive uh, person. Uh, mainly because of that, 
because of that hate campaign. And um, and from that point of view, he's probably way down toward the bottom. But yeah. then Abraham, well, Lincoln, the Abraham Lincoln wasn't yeah. very popular in the South either. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, because, uh, it was, you know, I guarantee if you look to 1964, 65, 66, you know, years, you know, just a few years after the Dwight David Eisenhower left office, he was poorly ranked. Uh, rank, I can remember historians ranking Reagan at very low when his presidency ended. But now that we've got a clearer look at Dwight David Eisenhower, <coughs> and, and you look at Reagan, you know, as you say, to me, Reagan is number, I have him you know, ranked as number four presidency, Washington, Lincoln, FDR, and Reagan. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, the guy is not just transformational. His economic plan not just worked, but it worked for three, nearly three decades of growth and spread worldwide, and a good portion of it spread worldwide to a point where, you know, poverty, worldwide probably drank, you know, you know shrank dramatically. Uh, number two, he won the Cold War without a nuclear war. <laughs> That's an accomplishment. I mean, the two things you expect, out of a president, you know, protect America, and you know, ec- you know, and you know, finding economic plans that work, and you know, having prosperity and peace combined, you know, he did both. Uh, and and there was a transformational period of time with Reagan uh, that you have. He built a coalition that pretty much elected presidents through, you know, through the, you know, if you look at say. George H.W. Bush, you know, we'll deal with Clinton a little bit later. I, th- I think he's a fascinating person to try to rank. But, you know, Bill Clinton basically surrendered to the Reagan agenda. Big government is over. Um, you have the Bush administration, uh, and then you have the uh, 2016 Trump. So there was an aspect of that coalition at last. And my problem with Trump is more in this way. Uh I'm not sure, you know, I, to me, he transformed the party, the Republican Party, and the coalition. And he put in place a coalition that could be built. And to me, a part of that long-term success, you know, how do we rank Trump maybe in 2024 if Ron DeSantis wins the election, as an example? I mean, he'll be carrying the Trump coalition. And... Uh, and I think that would be an aspect that you can sit back and say, you know, and again, to me, there are accomplishments that he has. Uh, in foreign policy, the Abraham Project, you know, steering our policies toward with China. Uh, and, he, and there are areas where he, they say he held the line. And certainly NATO. his economic plan, yeah. yeah NATO, and NATO is a good example. I mean, you know, he was always skeptical of alliances, but he basically said, and this is a point I tried to make a couple of weeks ago on another show, on one of our other shows on Tuesday, so I said, well, you know, there's a point somewhere where he basically told, I mean, in effect, he kind of gave the message to NATO, look, don't expect us to send our sons and daughters to die for you if you're not willing to put in 2% of your GMP to arm yourself. And that's, and he succeeded in that, in getting that increased. Uh and that was monumental. I mean, that that yeah. that that was reversal of 
the things that uh, Truman and Eisenhower started. Yeah. You know, and if there, to me, the one weakness he had, you know, if there's a weakness, it could be seen in many ways in the pandemic, both good and bad. Uh, the bad aspects of it is sometimes with presidents, you need that leadership. That's, you know, those comforting words, you know, like take Reagan after the challenger crash, the explosion, of the challenger yeah, and go back to that speech. And it's, it, and that was something that Trump never could do that level. You know, when you needed that moment of unity, he never could quite do that. Uh, you can see that in the pan. Now, part of it is the government is that the media wouldn't allow him to get away with it. And and then also the other aspect, the weakness is that okay, is that he allowed the bureaucracy to hijack his agenda with that, with the pandemic. You know. And I contrast that to what okay, Ron DeSantis. The difference between Ron DeSantis and Trump would be is this. Ron DeSantis didn't allow his state bureaucracy to hijack. He turned around and led the effort. And we're going to discuss more about this in a little bit here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor's Radio Leffer. We do have uh, Dr. Larry. We're talking American presidencies. Uh, here on the Bachelor News Radio Network and the Donaldson Files. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m. I shower. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. So back to the Dawson Files and the Bachelors Radio Network. This particular segment will be brought to you by Napa Authors. Napa know-how. The Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, if you want to listen to this show uh, and other shows, the bachelornews.airtime.pro, bachelornewsairtime.pro, you can listen to this show. Uh, and we have a schedule for it. Not only that, but you can listen to it in, Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, StreamYard. All of those shows also feature the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So let me ask you, okay, so let me kind of follow up on what I just stated. You know, there's an aspect to that, you know, the, you know there's, you know, a lot of his supporters love the fact that he's pugnacious and a fighter. But I always thought sometimes, you know, 
that could get away. There were those moments in which you needed to be Reagan-esque or Lincoln-esque as opposed to Trump, as opposed to be, it needed to be that unifying aspect. And I think that was what, to me, one thing that was missing in his presidency. Um, your thoughts? Well, I think the big difference between um, Ron DeSantis is approach to the pandemic and uh, Donald Trump's is Yale. <laughs> I think that I think that uh, when uh, DeSantis went to Yale and he found all these people around him that didn't agree with the kind of values that he had grown up with, he uh, basically had had the time the and the motivation to uh, think think his way through whether what what he really did believe and and what they were pursuing and and he became a pretty independent thinker and uh trump at the same in the same period was was uh not not the same chronological period but the same period of his life um you know he was he was uh, in there and uh in uh, uh, business school, and and he was in the, he was in the Ivy League, I guess. But but basically, he never had that he never had that urge to become an independent thinker so much as a independent doer. And that really is the difference between what the way the two men approached this whole thing. Uh, DeSantis decided to, you know, wait a minute, let me just take a look at this myself because I'm getting a lot of conflicting uh, information here from different people, and um, and then uh, and and then he did, and he started coming to different conclusions that than he was hearing from uh, Dr. Fauci and others, and uh, he consulted the people that he trusted, and he came up with an entirely different approach. And he had the self-confidence to do it, and I think that's what—that's what, that's what uh, Trump really lacked in in the intellectual realm was the self-confidence to go ahead and and just uh, defy all the all the uh, you know so-called scientific experts and uh, and just go off on his own. Yeah. Well, I mean, from Bobby Blaine said there's the inexperience side of the equation. Because obviously, if you look today versus five years ago, you know the Trump wing of the Republican Party, your more populist wing, or your populist conservative wing, there wasn't a whole lot of people there ready to take control of key. key. And he had to basically end up going to a lot of establishment folks. You know that's part. Of it. And the other part of it too, you make a good point with Ron DeSantis, is that he understood. You know, he's looking at the data. He's looking at stuff. He said, "Well, you know, this doesn't make sense." You know, what's, what's coming out of Washington. And so, he, you know, he was an independent thinker on that particular line. You know, he, but right. he went to the science. And I, and I think the, to me, the key element, and you've made this point yourself, because they say the one thing he got, again, you know, you know, I said this on my show, we would have a vaccine at the end of the year. Trump said we'll have a vaccine at the end of the year. He had faith in the market in private companies to do exactly that. When did the pressure watch them develop something of necessity. And Warp Speed was, in fact, a success story within the pandemic. Uh, no and question he'll never about get that. Full, 
Yeah, yeah. And, and to me, the only and that's to me, you know, if there was a lesson to be learned from Trump, the bureaucracy is not your friend if you're a Republican, and you clean out the House, and you don't allow these people to run your policy. And I mean, the first, I guess, the difference would be is this. Uh, is that? Well, go ahead. Well, well, what he did was what a uh, uh, top executives always do, and that is when it, something happens in an area that they don't know much about, they try and collect the the smartest people that they know of uh, in that area, and then they get them together and they talk and come up with something, and. Uh, that's what he did, and he was very. Uh, it's not too surprising that that he went to the head of the uh, National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases when it came to uh, a pandemic of this type. Uh, after all, I mean that's that that would be the logical person who would who would uh, have the most authority, and it was, and I'm sure was widely. Uh, uh, recommended to him by by the people that knew something about this. I, I think he didn't. They didn't go and do a background search at uh, uh, in the um, yeah. at the NIH like like they would if they had a uh, an appointment for a office or something. But anyway, um, he he did that, and 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 had he been a little luckier. <laughs> had a had a guy who was a little bit more uh, uh, e- effective and uh, shall we say uh, uh, straightforward, uh, he, he he might have come out all right. But unfortunately, the guy he chose was was not uh, not not of that caliber, and that that really became his whole downfall. For uh, well. To, to, to some extent, I mean, he 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 wised up by the end of April. He was pretty he was pretty yeah. sure he was on the yeah. wrong track, but it was yeah. too late. And again, I mean, it's uh, I guess say he had enough accomplishments for me to rank him considerably higher than Obama. I mean, I don't have Obama, you know, at this point. And again, the other aspect with the Obama is I think his faith going to be as much tied. To Biden's administration is anything else. If the Biden administration proves to be a failure, this is the Obama third term. And you can sit back and say the Obama methodology didn't work or the radicalization of the Democratic Party didn't work, which is where he was headed to anyway. So, I mean, that has to be a reflection there somewhere as well. And so far, you know, Joe Biden is basically done everything that you expect him to do, which is everything wrong. <laughs> you know, he may end yeah. up you know, being, yeah, he may end up being that uh, wild card. But here's the thing. Okay. Like I say, FDR, Reagan, I think, you know, you and me kind of agree on the top four or top five. Here's the interesting thing. You know, a lot of people rank Theodore Roosevelt fairly high, and I have him in my top ten. But I've always ranked William McKinley higher because he was not the flashy guy that Roosevelt was, but 
He was one, you know, he was stability. And you have to understand in those days, I mean, uh, America was going from, let's say, became a world power at the, as a result of the Spanish-American War. And, you know, and suddenly McKinley found himself with an empire that he certainly didn't campaign on. And, and a lot of the policies that, let's say, uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt liked the trust busting were policies that were in formation under McKinley. In other words, you know, if you read, like, say, Robert Murray, the historian of McKinley, uh, talks about very clearly that he was headed in that direction of antitrust. He was not necessarily, you know, the plutocrat that a lot of people, you know, historians are led to believe. Why he did appreciate businesses, uh, and he certainly had allies in the business community. He also was able to attract enough what we would say in those days blue collar immigrants and blacks to his coalition, which won two elections in a row and pretty much put together coalition that lasted a third of a century. Uh, I put Thomas Jefferson sixth. And I like Harry S. Truman seventh, mainly because you know, he was in that that period of time where you know, the transformation from the World War Two to the Cold War. And put and he essentially put into formation the policies that eventually led to victory. You know, policies of containment, which later became the policy of victories under Reagan. Uh, and so his insights, or I should say his policies, lasted beyond his presidency. What about you? you know, is there anybody up there that I didn't mention that should be mentioned? Well, if you, if you want to uh, – somebody whose um, contribution is – is uh, really underestimated and unappreciated was uh, Calvin Coolidge. And, um, you know, when he and, and, um, the, uh, and Mellon used to sit down and go through the entire federal budget line by line and decide, you know, how they, what, what they were going to um, uh, support and what they weren't, and, and uh, they actually basically uh, – rewrote the entire federal budget. Of course, today that wouldn't be possible at all, but you'd have to have computers. But um, And then I, I think the biggest, the biggest problem, frankly, the biggest, the biggest problem uh, that, that, uh, that happened was that he, he decided that he had been in, he had been in the uh, forefront long enough and he, did, he didn't run again in 1928. Had he run in 1928, I don't think we would have had the, the depression that we had under over, um, because he had he he had a, a, an innate sense of uh, getting the uh, the people to follow his uh, his lead, uh, whatever the problem was. Of course, he didn't face a he didn't face a major problem uh, in like a war, but uh, I think I think. The more I find out about him, the more I impressed I am. Um, I am. I mean, uh, I, I, I have Coolidge in my top fifteen, uh, mainly because for that reason. Uh, I mean, he was not a transformational president per se, but he was an above-average, smart, understood America, and his accomplishment, economically speaking, you know, 
were excellent. And, and another president that is always ranked at the bottom uh, is Warren Hardy. And I would take Warren Hardy's you know, uh, uh, term of office and compare it to JFK. They both ran about the same period of time. Uh, but, the, but here's the thing. Yeah, and that's the thing people reason why let's say for example I would rank Woodrow Wilson very low. To me he's one of the most overestimated president of the United States. Uh, in particular his second term. And what people don't realize uh, is I'm gonna tell this story off the other side of the break. This is Tom Donson Kokokonsky. Uh, oh got Jesus. Tom Donson, Doctor Larry tonight. You know, Coco is not here on the Wednesday edition of the Resistance I, I, Hour. I can't compete with her. Yeah. <laughs> you might know me on 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Uh, the remainder of the show, this segment will be brought to you by, sponsored by Buffalo Wild Wings. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Johnson Pods. Don't forget you can listen to this show and other great shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Simply tune in to the Bachelor News Airtime dot Airtime dot Pro, the Bachelor News dot Airtime dot Pro, and you can get on the air and, and get a schedule of our programs and repeat of many of our past great programs as well. And uh, and if you want to be a sponsor of the show, here is just email. LABachelor40 at gmail.com, LABachelor40gmail.com, and we'll get a sales team out to you. And you, too, can be a sponsor of the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah as I was saying, uh, you know, Warren Hardy was one of those men who was always, you know, as I stated, you know, the Woodrow Wilson, I mean, the Wilson administration, if you look at the last second term during World War I, he won the war, and he lost the peace by his failure to work with the Republicans, many of whom were not necessarily enthralled, did not want the bigger nation, but they were perfectly willing to have alliances in Europe, for example, you know, uh, Cabot Lodge, uh, for example, uh, was one of the leading opposition to the League of Nation, thought it would detail – uh, think, you know, detail, let's say, America and messes that they didn't belong to. But he did not oppose, for example, a treaty with France and England uh, to maintain their security because he thought that would be the best interest of the United States. You know, had Wilson been able to work those things out, you know, you know history may have been different. Number two, he was incapacitated by a stroke. And he really didn't – I mean, I mean, here's the interesting story. I mean – 
is that his wife and his few supporters, a few within the White House, controlled the White House. The vice president himself, Tom Marshall, wasn't always aware, especially at the beginning, how sick the president was. I mean, that's how secret they kept everything. And much of the wartime control were in place. Pandemic of the Spanish flu on top of that. And we had a major recession. Some people used the word depression uh, in 1920. And Warren Harding's policies got us out of that particular mess. That's what people tend to forget. He inherited what some you know historians will call a depression. And well, he kind of torpedoed his his uh, reputation, though, uh, shortly after you know during his uh, during his uh, presidency. So. People don't think of him as much of a great president. Well, well, here's the thing. A lot of it deals with uh, of, of corruption within the administration, which he was not involved in. You know, it was uh, yeah, others was involved in his administration. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that's what he's noted for. What he isn't noted for was two things. Modesty as a public official, knowing his limitations. And two, he had what we would call today a superstar cabinet. I mean, Mel, you mentioned Mellon. Well, Andrew Mellon was the Secretary of Treasury. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes was the Secretary of State. Uh, Herbert Hoover Wonderboy, or as you know, Calvin Coolidge will call him, you know, was considered a superstar converse. And so he basically had a strong cabinet, and he, and he worked at that cabinet to come up with ideas very similar so you mentioned, you know, you know, Coolidge working with Mellon, you know, going through the ballot. In other words, he's a president that should be rated much higher. And the only rational reason is he wasn't a, he wasn't a liberal, and two, he followed the Woodrow Wilson era of progressivism. Wilson, on the other hand, was horrible in civil liberties. I mean, he had civil acts which. Espionage Act, and I forgot the other act. In fact, the Espionage Act is actually still on the record, and the Obama administration tried to use that against media in 2000, in the first administration, and trust in Pence there. Uh, and so you have essentially, you know, Donald Goldberg in his story, uh, you know, in his book, uh, Liberal Fascism, noted as many people were jailed by Woodrow Wilson in the last years of his administration, they were jailed by Mussolini in the first four or five years of his, of his reign. I should tell you something there. Hmm. Uh, so, and well, plus he was a racist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was the most racist president of the 20th century. You say Harding? No, or, no. Or Wilson? Uh, Wilson, yeah. No, Hardy actually was a defender of civil rights. I mean, he actually went to the South and gave yeah. speeches and saying blacks should have civil rights, you know, protecting the civil rights of blacks. So, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and so that's a, another one of those stories as well, if you take it, you know, based on that alone. Uh, but he's a guy who should have been ranked much, much higher. And let's say. Well, none of those like guys got. None of those guys got a second 
term, though, and I think that that is almost required if you're going to be, uh, you know, if you're going to be listed among the great uh, presidents. Uh, I, I guess yeah. uh, Lincoln's kind of uh, an exception, but that's sort of strange situation too. Uh, well, but here's the thing. Right. Well, here's the thing. In the case of Lincoln, for example, he won two elections. In the case of Calvin Coolidge, yeah, he had he served. Yeah, so did he, Nixon. Yeah, he. <laughs> yeah. So did Nixon. So I mean, that's. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> so, so we have so to be Nixon, careful yeah. with that assumption. <laughs> with that assumption, yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Come to play now, James Polk. To me, yeah. Here's a presidency that I think is interesting. James Polk. Now, Polk is one of these guys, when you look at it, you can go back and forth. The one thing he did, he fulfilled his promises. Uh, he said, manifest destiny, uh, you know, Texas in the South, you know, Texas will be part of the Union. You know, we had the famous 54-40 of fight, uh, you know, with the West Coast, Oregon. And the thing is, he, did a tre- he got a treaty done with the British where he basically, uh, you know, they split the difference in Oregon. The state of Oregon became part of the United States. Uh, you know, he's the Mexican War basically gave us the entire Southwest. So you have a president. Of course, the other aspect is there are those who would argue that the Mexican War was the war we started. Uh, and certainly, if you read the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, I mean, he makes Mother. that clear that he thought, you know, he he thought this was an unjust war. In his own estimation, uh, so I mean, it depends well, there, how you there, want to there, look. Go. There are people that are still, there are people that still believe that, and, and they're yeah. pretty vocal right now. Well, the, the thing, like I say, it's it's kind of an interesting paradigm because, you know, Mexico inherited when they became free from the Spanish yoke, but the you know, but the United and Texas, in the case of Texas, essentially was you know. Most of the people living there were probably coming from America to begin with. And there was a feeling among many Texans that uh, they wanted to be uh, part of the United States, even though they were an independent country for nine years. The problem has always been with Texas was, uh, you know, both Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren had a chance to bring in Texas. But what do you do because of the slavery issue? You know, does it come in as a slave state? And you had the Missouri Compromise at that point in time. So it's uh, there was a lot of factors back and forth. I mean, to me, the bottom line is this: Polk had objectives and he fulfilled them, and then said goodbye after one term. I mean, he fulfilled the promises that he did. Uh, so you have that. Um, well. So did so did um, Harding. I mean uh, Coolidge. You know he he also yeah. he stepped aside. I mean they, they considered that sort of an act of uh, uh, graciousness and uh, humility, if you will, uh, which is really lacking in any president we've had in recent years. Um, yeah. But but it also in historically it kind of argues against their being uh, considered the the great you know uh, in the in the, the the column of the great. So yeah, 
well, different yeah, times, the different theories. Yeah, different times. But the thing with Calvin Coolidge is, as you stated, he did have a war. Uh, uh, he did have a major crisis, per se. He ran the country efficiently, effectively, and people saw their incomes go up. And it's one of those things where if he was – and to me, part of the other part of the Calvin Coolidge, sometimes it matters who you follow. And Herbert Hoover, who was lit at that time a progressive Republican, basically did everything to turn a recession into the Great Depression. You know, name whatever you, you should never do economically in a economic slowdown. He did it all, everything that you're not supposed well, to do. You, you know, you could also make a point that that he uh, he didn't. Uh, it's what he didn't do. That that had had a big effect too. I mean, if he had been more less of a cheerleader and more of a uh, implementer of some new ideas that were actually floating around at that time, particularly relative to Wealth Wall Street, uh, you know, he, he, we might have avoided that whole that whole episode. But. He, he apparently just didn't have any sense of, of what might happen. And, uh, well, I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing with Coolidge. Coolidge was an engineer and thought like an engineer. Uh, that's always been my view of Coolidge. I mean, not me, uh, Hoover. Hoover thought like an engineer. And the one aspect he, of it is, you know, he, he thought, you know, if you do A, B should happen, C should happen. Whereas, let's say in the case of Warren Harding in 1921, or Coolidge, okay, there's a limit to what we can do to help the economy heal itself. Uh, and, and again, I'll go back to, you know, you know, what he did do. He increased government spending. He would increase taxes. Uh, he signed off on a tariff. Now, remember, tariffs were already fairly high, but he made it even higher and added, you call it the, made it even higher. And and then plus you did have the Federal Reserve that was well an experience that essentially didn't expand the monetary policy like they probably should have. They in fact you had a deflationary period because of the Fed. No. And that played a role, which by the way was independent from Hoover. But yeah, yeah, Hoover is one of these guys he became more conservative after he left office than he did while he was in office. He was an activist in office. Well, and it failed. Yeah, you, 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 I think that's debatable whether he was really much of. I mean, uh, if you want to say activist, and you think of uh, Roosevelt, you know that there's a there's a if that's your standard, then uh, Hoover was not an activist. Um, well, okay, here's the thing. You know, here's the thing. A lot of the policies that began, there were policies that he put in place that FDR took advantage of. So yeah, it wasn't some. while he had his, you know, there was limitation. But he was, I mean, again, he was on the more progressive side of the Republican Party as a reputation. Yeah. Uh, but when he got and, in and there, the, and he, the other, got, he froze. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of aspects that come to flip, but that's one of the problems. If you're Calvin Coolidge, this is the guy that follows, you're followed by, you get tainted by that. Uh, much in the same way, it'll be interesting to see if Joe Biden botches it, if Joe Biden botches it, which is a real distinct possibility, does that make Donald Trump look better? Uh, historically speaking, will people say, yeah, we didn't. It wasn't that bad. 
And you're still getting some of that thoughts right now with some people having what we call buyer's remorse. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. A lot of that. Yeah. You know, a lot of that going on. A lot on. of that. So, but, uh Well, I, as far as Biden botching it, um, it's it, it, it's certainly uh, a, a case could be made. He's already done that. <laughs> it only took him six yeah. months to ruin the whole darn, you know, everything that uh, we were trying to do economically yeah. and uh, policy-wise, foreign policy-wise. Yeah. Now, the other thing, too, there are presidents that I view as caretakers, you know, guys who are competent. They do their job. They don't necessarily make uh, radical changes one way or the other. You know, Dwight David Eisenhower did not reverse the New Deal. Uh, William, you know, Bill Clinton uh, did not reverse Reaganomics, even though he tried the first couple of years. Uh, the first couple of years tried, but, you know, after, I mean, it's a funny thing. He raised the marginal tax rates in the first two years, tried to get socialized medicine, didn't work, turned around, you know, worked with Newt Gingrich to balance the budget, you know, you know, you know restrict spending increases. And lowered the capital gains tax, and so he basically, uh, in some way, surrendered to the prevailing wind at that time, which was, you know, the Reagan view of government. Uh, we call it a caricature. Well, I mean, in other words, the country didn't fall apart while either one of these two men were president. They were confident in what they ended up doing. Well, we can't we can't uh, sign off without uh, saying that the, probably the, the thing that. Uh, uh, Obama is most like most likely to be remembered for is Obamacare, and uh, yeah. you know there's there's still people that uh, earnestly believe in that, and and it, it's probably going to be permanent. And yeah. uh, that's but, that, that's what people really think of him, you know, as the guy that gave us the uh, socialized. Med- uh, well, it's not really, but uh, he gave us Obamacare. Which is half socialized. Yeah. So, well, you got a point there. And again, you know, you know, this is one of those things you look at down the road, one way or the other. You know, how it's going to play out. But like I say, I, I think in the case of both Trump and Obama, it's too early to put them in, you know, where they're president, you know, where they're going to be ranked presidency. But the idea, when I'm the reason I brought this conversation up, is when I see. Historians rate Obama as like number 10 or in the top 10 or 15. I'm like, based on what? Uh, based on what? And and I think there was – my conclusion would be if people – there was an article done by Kyle Smith a couple months ago in National Review on Warren G. Hardy, and people should get back and read that article because it's a brilliant piece on the facts, on the accomplishments of Warren G. Hardy. And this is Tom Donaldson here in the Donaldson Files with Dr. Larry. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to have the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom shortly. This is Tom Donaldson saying good night here from the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
when you hear that trumpet, you know it's the doctor, it's the resistance hour. And uh, with uh, Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson, uh, I'm Dr. Larry Pedowa, your co-host for the evening. And tonight, we are going to be talking about uh, a, a new development called uh, robotic robotic process automation, and particularly for the public sector, and our uh, esteemed guest is uh, Dr. Ray David Rare, who is uh, standing by, I hope, and uh, we'd like to welcome uh, uh, Dr. Rare. Uh, welcome to the Resistance Hour, David. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be with you and all your listeners. I'm going to... So um, he then 
we we started talking business and he found out I had just started my company and uh, one 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 evening uh, uh, the doorbell rang and there was Bob standing there with uh, with a box of files and uh, he uh, said he would like to have me take over CGP and uh, he wanted to go to Mexico on an assignment <laughs> On a, on a consulting assignment, and uh, would I please take over the company? <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how I got into it. Uh, and then what happened was that in those days, quality management for uh, office workers uh, was obviously not building cars, and uh, it we uh, began to believe that they should be using computers. And there was tremendous um, opposition to the idea that that computer uh, computers and computer consulting and computer uh, affairs uh, had anything at all to do with management. It just had to do with buying computers and and uh, you know getting the the computers to uh, run on time and and there was just there was just no connection between management and computing. So we became the great uh, uh, advocates of uh, trying to introduce computer-based management into the federal bureaucracy. And uh, and it, it, it actually grew pretty quickly. And then the uh, Clinton administration came in, and they considered that whole thing uh, part of the Bush uh, uh, ven uh, idea and so they they uh, they they in the meantime um, OPM did wanted to have uh, it, the program got so big that uh, uh, they wanted uh, GSA to take it over and GSA didn't want to take it that's the government services administration and they didn't want to take it over but um, we were the only the only schedule in the entire federal government that was actually um, promoting computers, the use of computers by federal employees. And it turned out that it was on the verge of being extinguished. So at the last minute, we got to um, President, Vice President Albert Gore, who was had been appointed the czar of computers, uh, of uh, management, reforming government management, and uh, we got to him. He was on his way out to uh, England for a, for a meeting, and we told him that the only program that supported his mission in the entire federal government was ours. And uh, he made uh, some language that we won't we we won't uh, repeat on television, but he told him to get it done. And we got it done, and that's what, and that's how this whole thing <laughs> pursued, pursued, and uh, and so we were kind of in on the beginning of of the automation, if you will, of the of the federal bureaucracy. And now, uh, all these years later, along comes Dr. David Herrera and his crowd, and they have now uh, taken that to uh, an, an, an impossible to imagine uh, level. And uh, so David, uh, he, by the way, David is a professor at uh, George Mason University uh, uh, 
school, uh, what do you call it, SCAR? The SCAR School, yeah. SCAR so, School. Policy and government. Policy. And uh, so I'm going to now turn this program over to you. Uh, and well, first I guess we better take, a, take our little break here. Uh, this is, okay, uh, my... Uh, my producer says we don't have to do that, so we're going to start with you, David. And uh, I read your book, your your piece, and I'm ready and aiming. I've got all my ammunition ready for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So uh, a lot of your listeners may not – first off, thanks, Tom and Larry, for having me on the show. Um, I have spent about 25 years of my life – trying to figure out how we can make our government, which serves everyone, more efficient in what it does, because when they're not efficient, they use tax money poorly and more effective. So when government says we want to solve a problem, the problem gets actually solved. And I've seen through those 25 years a lot of frustrations because we see bureaucracy, we see silos, we see people within departments not speaking to each other, not working together, you know, um, just really not kind of getting the job done, so to speak. And I come from the Midwest originally, and I think I've told you before, but my father was a first-generation American, and he used to beat in my head, nothing in America is impossible, David, if you put you set your mind to it and you work hard. So fast forward to about... Uh, right before the COVID-19 pandemic hit us, and I, I came across this new technology called robotic process automation. And on we hear note, a lot about... Uh, on that note, I am now going to have to interrupt and... Okay, uh, no problem, and I'll come back to break. it as soon as we come back. This yeah, is the Resistance you. Hour with on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> wow, Jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys. Did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh. I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You're listening to the... Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We're talking to the um, expert on robotic process automation for automation, uh, Dr. David Rare, and you were about to tell us how you got into this. Uh, yeah, mess. yeah. So I'm sorry, Larry. <laughs> so a little before COVID, the pandemic hit us, and we were forced to shut everything down in America. I met some friends. Uh, who worked for a company called UiPath, which at the time was a privately held Romanian company, which looked at how you can automate back office processes 
to do them smarter and better and faster. Things like doing your expenses. How can you, and I know all, all of us probably have lived through the days where we take all of our expenses out and we make piles and we try to figure everything out. We do an Excel spreadsheet and we get frustrated. We add them all up and we turn them all in. And they were able to devise a system, a low-tech, no, low-to-no-code system of commercial off-the-shelf software technology that could automate repetitive rule-based tasks. And I remember the CEO at the time, who is still the CEO now, they went public about two or three months ago, uh, and they're doing very well as a company because they've got such a great product and a great idea, where he said, you know, I was always tired of doing my expenses, and I figure, why not let a digital assistant or a computer or a software computer do it for me? I know what the rules are. I know how to do it. Let's let the computer do it and take that burden off of me so I could spend my time on higher-value jobs. So I learned about this, and I did some research on it, and I discovered this was really a great opportunity for the public sector to use a – now it's not emergencies. It's more of a mature technology, although it's been in the federal government now for only about – four years to use robotics where, you know, we, right now we have thousands of people who are employed to, you know, input things or we do emails that we have to send to people or we just spend a lot of time working at our computers and a lot of that can be done by software and by computers without the person really having to be there at all. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. So I said, hey, this robotic process automation idea could really do wonders for government because it could make government function better for everybody. It's not political. It's not partisan. It just kind of does its thing. So I did further research on it. I discovered that NASA, uh, which is you know puts people around the planets and on the moon – first developed it and used it in some of their internal back office spaces and many other government agencies were looking at it and the government and this is kind of ironic Larry the government general services office the GSA was one of the first and I give them a lot of credit to come up with the processes that could be used by automation and they figured on the back of kind of a napkin that by doing just a few of these they saved over 200,000 labor hours of time. So suddenly they were, people... They were trained by the best. Right, right. So soon <laughs> these people were relieved of doing mundane things, which frankly are boring and you don't really like to do, and you could use these same people to do higher value things in GSA, like making sure the programs are working, everything's done. And then... It, quickly expanded among a few government agencies. And I came across this, and I kept reading all these examples. You know, most recently in California, they used it because during COVID, they had a problem that nobody could go to a California DMV and get their driver's license extended. And if it's not extended, you know, you can be fined or you can't drive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they were able to, to develop a robotic process which essentially took the backlog of, un, of uh, expired licenses, those not extended, brought them up to date really quickly, 
and yet saved $13 million for the state in costs that they didn't have to put out. And I was like, wow, we got to tell more people about this. So I and another fellow who I know very well, who's actually from Romania, and the company was originally founded in Romania, put together something called the Robotic Process Automation Initiative. It's at George Mason. It, its goal is basically to educate, research, uh, and publicize the robotics automation process and industry, primarily for the public sector. And many of your listeners may not realize they may they may intuitively know it, but we have more government than we know what to do with. Not only do we have the layer at the federal level, but we have something like 93,000 units of state and local government. And if you think about all the counties, all the cities, all the state programs, all the state bureaus, everything, that's pretty much the public sector. And I'm thinking, you know, if we could get 20% of these people to use robot robotic process automation, it will free people up and probably save taxpayers millions of dollars. So we kicked this off in January, and we just most recently produced our first paper called The Promise of RPA in the Public Sector, where we went through the history of automation, you know, kind of what's happened since the industrial age in a very short period of time because we didn't want to bore readers with, you know, excessively economic-focused history. I'm an economist by background. I like it, but when I talk to my wife or children, they're like, okay, Dad, get to the point here. I don't know what, I don't know what they were thinking in the 19th century, and I don't really care. So we went through kind of the first industrial age, primarily driven by the U.K. and Britain, where we went from machines replacing labor. And you all may remember there was something called the Luddite movement, these were people who single-handedly weaved things and they broke their machines and they protested, quote, the progress of technology. Meanwhile, we automated this cloth development, this cloth technology, and suddenly spools of cloth were being run. Cloth, particularly cotton, was the price of cotton was driven down. The supply of cotton massively increased. People could wear more cotton and improve their look and their quality of life so that transpires and we do very well and then we get to the second industrial revolution which i attribute mainly to america and that's you know henry ford and the ford motor vehicles and many of things that happened about 100 years ago where we were able to duplicate processes and make them routine so we could afford to make cars which people could afford to buy and we did that for cars, we did that for farm equipment, we did that for everything that Americans needed, and it helped propel us to be a very powerful and economically prosperous country in the world. And there are all sorts of statistics that I didn't include in the paper about how the quality of life improved, you know, salaries improved, people had more time to do things other than work, but generally it was very positive. Then we go into fast forward in time, and I'll try to make this short. We go to what I would call kind of the third industrial revolution, which was the advent of computers. So the first one was simply a substitute for machines for labor. The second one kind of coexistence of machines and labor because each needed each other because you couldn't have you know cars built by 
you needed people there to make sure that all, everything was screwed on tight and that all the parts were put in the right place. So we go through to this third revolution kind of that we're experiencing now with computers where computers can augment labor by doing things that people no longer have to do. And that gets involved in machine learning and artificial intelligence and kind of that whole genre. And we're really just at the beginning of that. So I produced the paper. You know, I'm just a lowly economics PhD at George Mason, and the paper goes global. I'm suddenly getting LinkedIn requests from people in, you know, Romania, in England, in in uh, Singapore, you know, all over the world who are saying, you know, we're into RPA2. We're trying to get it in, in our public sector governments and what can we do to help? How can we progress at this? And I'm like, we just have to think about how we can continue the momentum and kind of, you know, for those who've read the book, Good to Great, we want to turn the flywheel faster so it goes faster and we can get more acceptance of robotic process automation and basically get these personal assistants, they call them bots, robots, digital assistants, everywhere in government so frankly you know maybe we could use less people as they retire maybe we could have those people who are working now focus on more interesting jobs like one of my pet peeves is going out and seeing are the programs really working we have hundreds of programs which are designed to eliminate hunger but no one really goes out and ventures well is the program reducing hunger they just sit in their office and they're filling out all these forms. Well, we could have robots do that, and that frees them up then to travel and visit the actual programs to see that they're working. And if they're not working, come back with their plan on how to make them work so we're not wasting taxpayers' money. So we kicked this thing off. We produced the paper. I sent you a copy, Larry. It's available at our website at cbce.com gmu.edu. It's all free. It's all public. I encourage people who are interested in this topic to go there and see it. It's about 25 pages long. I've never been prouder of anything I've done in my life than produce this paper. We wrote it from a non-IT perspective because one of the things that I realized as I was going through this kind of learning process is that I talked to the IT guys who are extremely smart. They're 50 times smarter than I'll ever be, but it's hard for them to communicate often the benefits or what it does or how it affects people. So then I said, you know, part of my job being the consummate former lobbyist marketer that I am is to be an evangelist for it and get people aware of it so they get excited about it. So we've had... And each month, we now have states adopting it. We have some cities adopting it. This is a worldwide phenomenon. We had the U.K. adopt a robotic process automation for its unemployment checks, which I might add not only improves the process because you're forced to think through, actually, how do we do it? But then you can also audit programs better. You can find more uh, a, a kind of exclusions to the rule, things pop back and they say, this person's supposed to get in the UK, they're supposed to get an unemployment check, but they're dead. Where now you have to wait for the, you know, the uh, 
different computers of the different systems to meet. They're often antiquated. This technology goes across all different computer systems universally so everybody can talk to everybody else and we can speed up making sure that we're not making payments to people who aren't living and shouldn't get the money. Um, so I'm pretty excited about it. Maybe I can take a break and you can ask some questions. Um, but it's, it's, it's very exciting, and I think it's going to be something that will help transform government into being something that's better not only for America but for all uh, democratic countries around the world. Well, we do have questions, and we will start that uh, as soon as uh, we take a little break. At, uh, this is the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys. Did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and we're talking to uh, Dr. David Rare, who's uh, uh, the author of a new uh, uh, study on uh, robotic processing uh, automation. And Tom, um, I'm sure you've been listening carefully, and you probably have some questions, so I'll let you uh, start off. Yeah, but here's a Okay, the first question I got, in your uh, paper, you talk about several benefits. But let me ask you the first question I'm going to ask you is, does that benefit include uh, reducing the amount of workforce? Well, it may. I mean, I don't, I don't argue in the paper that you, you could theoretically do it if you wanted it, but we are also seeing, Tom, our – are at least at the federal level, federal employees being much older and retiring at higher rates than people in the private sector, in at least the D.C. area. And then my thought was, well, maybe if you're able to automate some processes as people retired, you don't need to replace them if you can automate what they were doing. Now, this is not designed to eliminate jobs, but I think it might right the size of government agencies. 
At least that's okay, the point, a, not the primarily the yeah. primary reason. Uh, the I other, mean, the other yeah, okay. The other point point is you're making this thing, and I want you to kind of explain why this would be true. Reducing stress and lessen employees from getting being tired and burned out. How right. Does, you know. Well, here's let me just give you an example because I talked to another company a few days ago that read the paper, and their their name is Hyper Automation. They're a great company. They're all over the world, but they spend all their time figuring out how do we take people away from their keyboards where they're inputting documents and automate that. Now imagine if your job as an employee is just to keystroke documents into a computer all day long. And you do that for eight hours a day, five days a week. You have breaks, but at least from my perspective, I'm not sure I wouldn't get burned out on doing that. Because it would get kind of boring to me if all I'm doing basically is copying what other people said but putting it in a computer format so it can be digitized. And if we're able to like substitute that for machines to do it, you then could free that person up to do something else if they wanted to. Now, I know in, Virginia, in the state of Virginia, they've done some automation, they've done some things, and I talked to one of the guys who used to work down in Richmond, and he said to me, David, what you have to remember is sometimes people are a little hesitant to change. And I said, I totally get that. And he said, when we went from Microsoft Word to Apple, people retired or quit because they didn't want to learn a new process. And I said to myself, you've got to be kidding me. He said, well, some people kind of, they do things one way for a lot of years, and they don't really want to change. And they figure this might be my chance to do something different. So it's not the process isn't designed because I'm I, you know I'm like you Tom I want to have an efficient government I want it to be as lean as possible it's not designed to you know substitute labor uh or basically substitute machines and computers for labor but it may be as we I think I saw a statistic that said uh we're going to see in the IRS unless we you know we're hiring more people now because of Biden's not very thoughtful approach on the IRS and going after people who aren't paying their taxes, quote, unquote. Um, But that may be something where a lot of the people are coming up to retirement age and they're going to be leaving voluntarily. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what they did was important when they were here, but times have changed. We now can do some of the work they did with digital assistance. Maybe we don't need somebody full-time. Maybe we need someone part-time. Or maybe we need flexible work. Or maybe we just need to think about how we could cluster jobs together and, again, give people meaningful things that they can do and not just have them stare at computers and, like, re-input things. Or And I'll give you a, a specific example. So my son just started a new job on Tuesday. I'm very excited for him. He's he's working in construction, but he's filling out all the paperwork, you know, the W-4s, the Virginia State taxes, that he's a, that he's actually an American and not a, not an illegal alien, etc. So I saw a process with RPA that all you need, and they're sending his contract back and forth, and it needs to be signed by people, etc. Pretty grueling process. At least it was for me because I was helping him. So I saw a RPA process where all they need is his driver's license. All the processes, all the forms are ready to go. When he scans his driver's license, they're all automatically 
filled. The name, the address, everything you can imagine about the person. It then is routed automatically to his supervisor who has to click that he approves it. It goes to the comptroller who then clicks and he's notified that it's there. He clicks it and says, I've seen it. And basically he takes a process that might take several days and reduces it to less than an hour. So those are the kind of possibilities, and that was just one example, but those are the kind of possibilities we have. You know, I know you probably know this better than I, but getting a national security clearance, and we want to be super careful on who we give those to. I'm not saying we should give them to anybody, but a lot of my students who are trying to get them are told, you have to wait two years, two and a half years, and they're trying to get jobs that are open now, but they have to have the clearance. It may be that RPA, and the same thing happens. They fill out the paperwork, and then people come, to, they call me or they visit me, and they say, you know, do you think this person is a threat to the United States of America? And most of the time I say no. Um, uh, but what if we're able to automate that so everything gets filled out, and then you can have the agents in charge just focus on the personal interviews to conclude what they need to find out about and to do the investigation and turn those national security credentials around faster so we don't have, you know, now that we're in this crypto security war with Russia and other countries, we don't have vacancies that we need to be filled so we can kind of get on the offensive rather than watching them, you know, uh, take control of our companies and blackmail us. Well, I have a question. Yeah. It, it seems to me that you're you're um, using a rather unusual um, interpretation of the word robotic. Um, right. Because you're not talking about little mechanical men. You're you're talking about software. Right. Right. And so, how would you distinguish that software from other software? Well, I think the better term might be personal digital assistant. It initially got kicked off as robotic, and then they went to bots. And I think whoever thought about kind of the framing of the words being used really didn't think through the unintended consequences of that because now when you hear robotic, you think of robots, you know, meeting you at the door and, at the door and saying, hello, would you like to come in? Would you like coffee? You know, and they're kind of moving around your house. This doesn't, isn't like that at all. You know, it's really a digital assistant who performs things for you, and they can be, they can totally do it on their own, and they can also you can build into the processes checkpoints where you have to approve things, but it still moves the whole thing along in a much quicker way. Well, uh, and I think Larry, to your point. There's some. There's been some resistance. I mean, I talked to a professor the other day that said, you know, David, I read your paper. This is all great. But won't there come a day when, you know, we'll have all these personal assistants doing all the work and no one will be employed? At which point I said, you know, he was like, I think he had a Ph.D. in communications, a very nice fellow. But I said, you know, if you look at the economics of history, every time we had an innovative, clever response, to the market. We only expanded opportunities for people. You know, we went from the farm to the city. We expanded city opportunities. We went from using typewriters to using computers. And who would have guessed that we have 
trillions of dollars worth of businesses today who do graphic design. You know, it's tech. I'm I'm not afraid of technology. I think we've got to be careful and have strong moral values, of course, when we're using it. But I'm not afraid of technology taking my job because it can never teach what inside my brain I know. It can try to replicate things, but it can't ever teach it to other people. And I don't think computers will ever, AI will ever be able to do that and replicate the complexity of the mind. Well, <clears throat> that is one one issue, though. Um, um, there, uh, there, there are a number of uh, sort of technical issues. I don't want to get too far down into the into the weeds here, but right. Um, it, it seems to me that that um, the uh, need for AI is very much uh, right at the right near the surface of this whole this whole idea. Right. And 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 what what you really are going to get to pretty pretty quickly here, I think, is uh, you're going to get to uh, needing or wanting. Uh, pro- programming for a- AI to do a lot of these tasks that you're talking about, right? And and when as you do that, um, you do start el- eliminating jobs, uh, those kind of jobs anyway. And what you're doing is opening, it seems to me, what you're doing is opening uh, the need for um, a different kind of job, which is a uh, programmer to pro, to uh, interpret to uh, first of all understand and then interpret and then convert uh, all of these procedures that we're talking about into some kind of software and uh, it's there there uh, of course there are um, systems now that and they have been now for a, long, a number of years but uh, as to uh, so that somebody who doesn't know uh, much about a particular kind of uh, expertise can, in fact, um, uh, through a series of uh, uh, pre-designed questions, can come up with uh, reasonable uh, understanding of what the task is and how to and how to automate it. Right. Right. But. Um, as you get into more and more complicated subjects and, and routines, you, as you get into nuclear physics, for example, you're going to need you're going to need people who are really highly talented and highly trained in that in these various uh, fields in order to write the software you're talking about. Right, right, and I think those are good observations, Larry. Let me respond three ways. Number one not every process can be automated. So while I'm enthusiastic, I mean... it can be, though. Yeah, well, we're, touch, we're just at the tip of the iceberg with this. And if, even if you, know, we, you have me on the show a year from now and I come back and go, well, a lot of things have happened, even if we're able to get 50% of the processes in government automated, we've probably done a lot of good for a lot of reasons. You know, maybe we... We don't need as many people, and they retire. Maybe they go on to high, more more high-valued positions. Um, 
But let me just give you one concrete example from the Department of Defense, Before which surprised Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, this is the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me. I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in the six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org/hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feed- Napa Know How. Napa guy knows not to judge. Napa Know How. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and we're talking about Robotic Process Automation for the Public Sector with uh, Dr. David Rare and uh, Tom, my co-host, Tom uh, Donaldson. Go ahead, uh, David. Yeah, I, w- I was, before we had the break, Larry, I was talking about, you know, kind of responding to some of your questions about where this is all leading. And I had really three responses. One was not everything can be automated. We're just touching the tip of the iceberg with this because we've never done this before. But I think if we can, there's a lot that can be automated, and we should do that because it will drive better results for constituents, stakeholders, people in the public sector, and we probably have a lot of unintended benefits as a result of doing that. Secondly, the jobs that are now coming forward, we can't find enough people to do robotic process automation work right now. Right now, if you live in Washington, D.C., and you go on Indeed, there are over 110 job openings for somebody who has some, some knowledge. You don't have to be an expert. Some knowledge about RPA, and the pay scales range from seventy dollars to $110,000, which in my mind is good money. So it's it's not like we're going they're going to be making less than a minimum wage you know we're going to starve people to death this is actually a very uh highly qualified highly and i'm also trying to think of a way about how we can use our initiative to get more of our students educated in rpa because these are good jobs and it's the sector is only growing in the future the third thing is, and I want to give you a concrete example. If you go to our website, which is cbce.gmu.edu, and I apologize for being a commercial, but we've done a series of webinars where we do Zoom video presentation with experts from the GSA, the DOD, all sorts of groups. I think we've done five or six of them so far. We're going to have state CIOs coming. We're going to do one on jobs in the sector Uh, coming up in a few weeks, and you should look at them because what I didn't know at the Department of Defense, they're using robotics. It's not everywhere, but they're using robotics, and they're using machine learning, and they're using IT. And let me give you the example. So every month, 
the Department of Defense and the Comptroller's Office tries to get a snapshot of what was spent the month before. Good business practice. But generally in the past, it's taken more than 30 days to get that snapshot. So you're always behind. Now using RPA, going through the process and automating it, they can now do it in three days. More importantly, the automation finds when there's inconsistencies. And they found one, which I just kind of laugh about. It's not really funny, but there was a purchase of 10 tanks that they were made by the DOD. And they went through the process, and they found out that they hadn't gotten nine of them, but no one knew where the 10 tank, the 10th tank was. Now, tanks are pretty expensive vehicles because they're supposed to, they're protecting our troops and we invest in them because we want them to, you know we want to be victorious on the battlefield etc but the, the person said to me that was really the first time it became obvious to us that there's an auditing function so we can always be sure that the vendors we're using to do things for our troops and our soldiers are actually doing the right amount in the right way and they're not, unfortunately, trying to bill us for more and then not producing. And I think there was some kind of snafu. I mean, people weren't doing it to try to cheat the government. But they, they said to me, we probably wouldn't have found out this months ago because we, we didn't automate the process. And in the process, we were able to build in. When you find things that didn't match, it automatically flagged it so somebody could manu manually check it. So... I think this is, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a downside. I'm sure people are going to say things like, you know, how is it going to affect labor, et cetera. But I think because of the, you know, and Tom, I hope, agrees with me, but we're spending more than a million dollars a minute right now just on the federal government. And I want to sink that in. So when everybody goes to sleep tonight and sleeps for six hours and they sleep 360 minutes, the government has spent... $360 million while you are asleep. We can't keep doing that. Well, so we I, have I to figure out how we're leaner, we're meaner, you know, how we can innovate, how we can use technology to maybe slow the spending or to make the spending more valuable than it was, has been in the past. At least that's my opinion. And I think robotic process automation can help do that. It's not going to solve every problem, but you know, if we're missing one tank and we don't really know about it, I once had someone in the Department of the, of the Navy said, well, David, we can't really audit the books at the Navy. And I said, why not? And he goes, because our first set of books were never balanced. And because we I've been at it for 10 years, I've never been able to balance the books in 10 years. And I said, well, what do you do? And he goes, we just put proxy entries in to make sure it's balanced. And I'm like, are you sure that's right? Yeah, but think about that just for one agency, and they may have solved their problem now. I don't know. I haven't talked to this guy in a long time. But it kind of shocked me to think if you had a business and you did that and you couldn't balance your books and you were a shareholder company, you'd go to jail. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not trying to, to uh, diminish your uh, enthusiasm here, but uh, I am confused. Uh, how, how do we define uh, robotic software from other software? If if if, if I if I'm writing uh, a program, how do I know whether it's 
robotic or not? Is it based on the subject matter or is it a No, it's really, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really based on methodology, Larry. I have not actually gone into the software and tried to build a bot myself. I want to do that in the coming weeks so I can experience that firsthand. But um, it's not really complicated technology. It's what they call kind of a low-tech approach. I like to think of it as maybe accelerating. I'm sure it's more complicated than this. I'll get myself into trouble here. But it's more like accelerating an Excel spreadsheet and going through the processes. So you have to define what you can automate, and then you have to go through all the different processes that goes into finding the solution. Then you have to designate which ones are the most important because government can't do anything. You know, many people would argue government could do very little, in fact. You design the process. You build the software robot that emulates the steps of the process. You then implement it, test it, et cetera, and then you monitor and maintenance the, the application process. But, again, the Department of Defense example, they sent somebody, and there are all these there are great robotic process automation companies all over the world that are doing this. They have their own universities to train people on using robotic processing. And the Department of Defense person told me offline that they had somebody who was really engaged, and she went to the class, and she came back, and six days later, she came up with her own digital assistant, digital assistant which helped her streamline a process there, saved countless hours and probably countless dollars of taxpayers' money. And she was really only trained within a week or so. So it's... So, so, so you're not writing code, yeah. It's yeah. a process yeah. then. I mean, it, it's a procedure. If I if I have a handbook and I can open the book and go from one to two to three and just. I believe so, but I've not done it myself, so I have to be the first to say I'm a little ignorant in the actual implementation. Yeah, yeah. This is Tom Dalton again. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how about, uh, I noticed in the report you also had some experiences overseas uh, in Europe uh, and particularly some of the Nordic countries. Uh, can you kind of very briefly tell about that story, those successes? Yeah, yeah let, me, let me, I just want to make sure I get it right here. So, and I might add that the first RPA program in the public sector in the United States was NASA, and they only started in April of 2017. So it's been relatively recent, but I'm going to get to this porter because I want to get to all the examples that we talk about in the paper. So robotic means that it is a specified procedure of some Right, kind. right. So any fool can do it. Yeah. And I know UiPath, a number of the companies are like looking, are, are offering their training to like, um, people who have been hard to employ, you know, I mean, if you're able to do a few things, you can learn how to do it. You can implement pretty quickly, you know, if you're competent, so to speak, and you can do very well financially as someone who gets into this business. So, so I'm almost there. Yeah. Let me get to some of the examples because yeah. they are pretty yeah. interesting. I just don't want to make any mistakes in talking about them. Well, 
while you're looking, I've got a couple of key issues that I uh, I would like to see you guys uh, confront. Uh, one is that uh, cybersecurity is is a fundamental uh, is is a fundamental concern for anything on any computer. And the, and the more you get on a computer, the more vulnerable you are. Right. And so it seems to me that <coughs> that putting uh, key some of these key issues on, uh, even if they're relatively simple-minded, uh, on on uh, in, in a digital form, is uh, it's taking a chance that that. Is that it can get leaked to the enemy. Uh, I'm talking now about more about defense stuff. And, and yeah, yeah. High technology, but um, this this whole issue of cybersecurity, as we're finding out uh, almost daily now, every, uh, the the uh, Russian uh, criminals seem to have a knack for uh, hacking into our uh, grid. Uh, it seems to me that that, that, that is really a, a critical element in the judgment as to where to deploy this, this uh, technology. Right, right. And, of course, because, as you know, I'm also a strong national security person, which is why I made the point that I'm sure they can't be used everywhere. You know, I wouldn't want to have a bot, a digital assistant processing things about, you know, our nuclear, nuclear capabilities because somebody hacks into it or you know, um, somehow gets into it. We we don't want those secrets out to people. Um, I'm told that because of the technology, it overlays all the different existing technologies. And if they're strong on cybersecurity, this is strong on cybersecurity. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. The problem is they're not very strong. Right, right. And they're getting weaker, as we can see, over the last few weeks. So I've got some of those examples that Tom wanted me to mention. United Kingdom, they wanted to increase the efficiency and improve decision-making on paying claims to people, uh, backlog claims of, of employment. Uh, and they went from an average of 2,500 claims per week clearing and a backlog of, backlog of about 30,000 claims. And in two weeks, they cleaned everything up with a calculated return of, on investment of about 15 to 1. In, Eng, in Ireland, they're using it in the hospital system to help hospitals and community create their own um, centers of excellence, and the automations are in charge of downloading lab results, providing a reduction in the manual workload, reducing human errors, and enabling rapid analysis and interpretation of COVID-19 results. You know, which resulted in nurses saving three de three hours a day of administrative work, so they could focus their energy on their patients. In New Zealand, they're using it in higher education, which I think we desperately need here. And I think actually George Mason is going to be looking at robotic process automation at its main campus in Fairfax, Virginia. But they're using it on automating internal processes such as student transfer requests and course options and the the overall response from the students has been it's increased their experience 
and has made their kind of like likeness of the universities even better. Nor Norway and Germany are using it in their post offices where the bots are able to free up worker time in mail delivery, particularly for like the last mile mail delivery. And I'm not sure what that actually means other than my father was a postman and he always complained about you had two envelopes and they would go, you'd have to go like the last mile and it was a huge burden and really costly to get it there. But they've managed to somehow make it more efficient in delivering the mail. Belgium's using bots for job matching uh, employment opportunities. So people who are unemployed or underemployed can be matched with people looking for experience or professional ed education or uh, new jobs. Uh, Denmark is using automations to reducing their population demands. In Sweden, the local welfare department is using RPA to speed up wel welfare payment decisions and boost employees' morale. The EU hasn't, you know, and I don't really like the EU very much, as I think you guys know. I think they're a big bureaucracy. But they're saying we have to go to digital transformation. This is a driver in the public sector. So they've endorsed it, and they say we need to have more automation to help worrisome humans not worry so much, which is not how I would have said it personally, but that's how they said it, as only EU elected bureaucrats can do. Um, but it's happening all the world. The great thing about the U.S. is we're still the largest market for RPA. You know, as I said early on, we've got 93,000 of units of state and local government. We've got the federal government. We're right now the competitive leader on implementation. So I think we have a shot to keep and, and expand our competitive advantage on this and bring a lot of these higher paid, higher tech, actually low tech, high tech jobs for people who need more employment in the country. Well, David, we're just about finished here. If we have some uh, computer nerds among the uh, audience here that would like to get a concept of this process that you're talking about, where would they look? Well, I hate to be a repetition, but they should go to the website C as in cat, B as in boy, C as in cat, E as in everyone, dot G as in George, M as in Mason, U as in university, dot EDU. And you'll see a page called the Center for Business Civic Engagement, and you'll see RPA in one of the tabs. Click on the tab. You'll see the webinars, the paper, research paper, kind of what our goals and missions are, and I think you'll find out as much as you want would like to know at least initially about RPA and that will lead you to other places you can go to get more information you can download the paper for free we have really I mean other than we have the intellectual copyright on it but we really want to spread this paper around to give people who are non or who are slightly technical uh, more ways to understand what's going on well, congratulations on your achievements on this so far, and uh, we certainly wish you the best of luck, and if anything that Tom or I can do or our, our station can do for you uh, to promote it, I'm sure we'll be glad to do it. So um, thanks again uh, to Dr. David Rare, and uh, 
we're uh, this is uh, Dr. Larry uh, saying good night and God bless America. Thank you, Larry.